Yo, what's going down, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Well, show me the meaning <laughs> with Ryan Austin and Riley. Everybody, we'll show we me the are meaning. Show me the meaning with Austin, yeah. Ryan, and Riley. All right. This, this 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 podcast is all about family. In case That's anybody right. wanted, to, this is it's always been, always has been, always will be about fucking family. And what that's up? why we're talking Fast and the Furious the today. We're not cat. talking Bird uh, Cage is. anymore. It's Fast and the Furious, right? Because <laughs> because what what franchise better exhibits what family is than? Uh, cons robbing actually there's probably a case to be made for that but we'll talk about that another time first we got to talk about what we're talking about today uh i'm austin hayden i'm joined by the show me the meaning crew we've got ryan what up film fans and we've got a special guest this week it's riley and spa what's up riley hi thank you guys for having me i'm so excited thank you for coming okay so Appreciate it, riley. so riley riley like if you were just meeting someone for the first time and you were mm. at soho you're at soho club oh all right god. and oh my god yeah 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 okay. and and Holy someone is shit. like okay riley give me the elevator pitch on riley and spa can you give us who, who and what is Riley and Spa? Well, I mean, like, how long is this elevator ride? Are we going one floor? Are we going ten floors? Um, it's a super fast. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. A, it's, a, it's the Willy Wonka elevator. Um, I am, I mean, shocking in this town. I'm very different. I mean, no one's ever seen anyone like me. I'm an actor. I'm a writer. <laughs> I'm a comedian. Um, and so I think that's what really separates me from the crowd. So that's what's pretty yes. exciting. Um, yeah, I, I do a little bit of everything. And um, I, I mean, like this is something that's been true about me since I was conceived. Is I am annoyingly obsessed with anything Nathan Lane touches or is in. Okay, and Hell so yeah. that I, I, when I told people I was coming on to talk about this show, they're just like, "You get to talk about the Birdcage for an hour." I'm like, "Sure do." Um, so that is such, yeah. I mean, <laughs> elevator pitch is like all of that plus Nathan Lane. <laughs> Nathan Lane obsessed. Okay, yes. absolutely. <laughs> Uh, how many times have you seen the producers is the question. Oh, right? I mean, I couldn't even count that in this movie. I, I feel I was trying to think about like the first time I saw this movie and it's the same with the producers. Like, I feel like I have always seen it. I have always known it. I can't remember a time <laughs> where I didn't have it in my brain. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Well, if if people couldn't pick up on the hints so far, we're going to be talking about the 1996 classic farce, The Birdcage, uh, directed by Mike Nichols, written by Elaine May from the amazing improv duo of Nichols and May, adapted from the Franco-Italian film, My French is Fucking Horrible, But I'm Gonna Do My Best, La Cage à Faux. Yes! Um, That was good. Starring... Okay, okay, okay. I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, for some for someone who has a PhD in French philosophy, his French should be a whole lot better. But, you know, well, that's all right. That's neither here nor there. Uh, but it stars Robin Williams, Nathan Lane, of course, uh, Gene Hackman, Diane West, Callista Flockhart, Dan Futterman, and Hank Azaria. Um, basically, in this classic farce, what you get is gay Miami, Miami drag club owner Armand and his partner Albert pretending to be straight in order to impress their son's in-laws-to-be. But the kicker is that this soon-to-be father-in-law is not just anyone. In fact, he's an ultra-conservative U.S. senator who founded the Coalition for Moral Order. And in the end, of course, we get a film about acceptance, diversity, artistic freedom, and the power of family. So before we start 
packing or unpacking this film for all of its themes. Let's go around and get first impressions. Because Riley is Nathan Lane obsessed, mm. and because this was her film choice, we're going to start with her. So, so Riley, this is Honored. what we did. What was it like? The f- Now, since you've always already... <laughs> have seen this film you might not remember the first time but what's the first impression of the birdcage on you and then what's it been like kind of revisiting it what was it like the most recent time you saw it yeah okay this movie i remember watching it and i this is bear with me i had the same first impression with this film as i did with there's something about mary in the way that it's like there are moments that like I know are supposed to be laugh lines and like big old comedy beats, but that made me weep, like simply just mm. cry. And um, my first impression, I mean, it's like you have Robin Williams and Nathan Lane and already I'm just like, I'll do whatever it is, I'll watch it. Um, but like, I think what is so, what struck me the first time I watched it and what and what strikes me every single, and I've seen this movie, I know every line of this film, I've seen it more times than I can count, is how... Um, for for such like you know a '90s stereotype role like mm. Nathan Lane especially, it's so human and so mm. um, like he's such a clown but he's like a tragic clown and it's it's so I mean it's just like it's heart he's heartbreaking and um, like that I just I just remember is very striking to me and I think like if if there wasn't that element to this it wouldn't in my opinion, it wouldn't work as well because it there's such a groundedness that he brings, um, whereas it could have just easily been just like, you know, super slapsticky, super, you know, whatever the entire time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so then I watched it again two nights ago with my roommate who had never seen it before. And um, mm. so it was just fun to go back, fun to get, you know, it's like when he comes in as Catherine in drag, like to hear her just gasp, like not expecting yeah. it. Like I like to get to experience that for the first time with her was super fun. I mean, then of course, I mean, it's, oh, Hank Azaria, it's tough, 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 tough. Um, Yeah. 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 We'll get into, we'll get into into some of that. A hundred percent. Yeah. I I didn't share it with you too, but I did just post it um, and it's, we'll probably post a link or we'll tweet it out. Remember to give us a follow at SMTM underscore POD. We'll tweet this out. The title of the article was 20, this was, it came out five years ago. So it's actually, the film's 25 years old, but this article was written 20 years ago and it was like, uh, the film should be hashtag problematic, but why it holds up. But it does talk about some of the um, maybe over-the-top caricatured performances and does talk about, you know, appropriating drag culture and should this be a problem. But then the author ultimately says, but it still works. And why was this film important for popularizing gay culture, bringing a uh, a kind of, for lack of a better term, healthy gay couple into people's living rooms where they had problems just like every other couple have fucking problems, but they're still monogamous and they love each other. And why those things were so important in 1996 where a large majority of states in the United United States had bans against uh, right. homosexual unions. So it's also important to kind of remember the time of this film. Uh, anyway, we'll put some of those links down below because there's actually like a lot of stuff and we'll tweet that stuff out. So remember to follow us. But Ryan, uh, what about you, brother? First impressions and then what's it been like on repeated viewings? Um, the first time I watched it, it was after I was going, uh, like in college, I would go through directors I liked, entire filmography, and I one time did Mike Nichols. And I, and I watched this towards the end of his 
you know, uh, of me watching all his movies because I, I really love him. And uh, you had said it for really well, Riley, about how human his movies are. And that's like the overwhelming adjective I would use on his whole filmography. And they're all so different, too, and really cool genres and really unique, too. Yeah. I, I highly recommend everyone go see Working Girl and Carnal Knowledge. Yes. And and obviously the graduates, you know, an undisputed Graduate, masterpiece. Yeah. But but then I but I'd heard people always talk about the birdcage and how funny it was, and then I finally saw it later in life and I and I loved it. It was it was because it, it's such a tightrope walk of a of a script where mm-hmm. yeah you could it, this easily I mean it is cartoonish in a lot of ways but but it easily could have of been yeah so silly to the point of mocking in a real fucked up way. But I think. I, in my opinion, I think it fucking works because of Elaine May's awesome uh, version of this script, which is, like we said at the beginning, you know, a remake, kind of, you know, or modernization, I guess you'd call Adaptation. it. Adaptation. Adaptation. Yeah. Yeah, 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 sure, we'll call it that. Of a French, uh, was, it, was it a play or was it a movie? I haven't seen it. So it's a stage play and then it was a Franco-Italian film. But yeah, the play oh, yeah. is like 73 and the film is like 78. They I did think. a revival yeah. of the musical with Kelsey Grammer as Armand Whoa. in yes. like 2014. <laughs> All right. Yes. So anyway, yeah, I, I love this movie and, and we'll get into it. But, but my favorite, the scene that really encapsulates it to me is just Gene Hackman and drag walking through and then <laughs> yeah. singing We Are Family. Like I'm like, <laughs> like that's like kind of what you're saying too, Riley, where it's a funny moment, but I'm like, oh. Like this, you know, man with a, you know, stone heart has like kind of like, oh, like he's learned something today and has a good message. I love this movie. So that was my first impression. <laughs> yeah. So my first impression, it's so funny. I, I've only seen this film twice. The, the one time when I was a fucking teenager and then now. And the first time that I saw it, I saw it with my mom. And I didn't remember much about the film except for it was, for lack of a better term, you know, very camp mm-hmm. and very flamboyant. That's all I remember. If you would have asked me about the birdcage, that's what I would have said. I would have been like, oh, I don't remember. I just remember Nathan Lane and Robin Williams. I didn't even remember that Calista Flockhart, Gene Hackman, Diane West. I didn't remember anybody else. They're Hank awesome. Azaria. I didn't remember anything. I just remember those two. And um, I remember their performances being big. And I remember it having heart. But I remembered it being really fun. Mm-hmm. And, and kind of like Priscilla, Queen of the Desert sure. is how I would have thought about it. Um, and then I remember that my mom fucking loved it. And I remember her laughing her face off watching it. And that's what I remember. Huh. So that was my first impression of it. It's through the eyes of my mother, you know, and we grew up in the theater. Like, I've, I, ne- I don't have a memory of time when I wasn't on stage or involved in the theater, right? So for me, this was also like a very sort of important piece because it was just a film about people in the arts, right? So that's another reason. So I remember it through my mom you know, her eyes. So then watching it last night, it was really kind of fun because I got to kind of put meat on the bones of this skeleton that I had carried with me for all of these years. And it's fun. It's interesting. Uh, my partner did come out at one point and was basically like, is this a little bit caricature you know? Um, and I was like, okay, so there's a lot of stuff written about this. So I started digging, reading things. I was like, is this, there have to be things that are commented on about some of these performances. And obviously we live in a time, we live in a time now where we're trying to be so careful with representation. We're trying to hire queer actors in queer roles. And we're trying to not appropriate drag culture for certain other purposes, et cetera, et cetera. So I was like, there's got to be stuff written about this. So then I started reading about it a little bit. And I was like, okay, so there's actually some really interesting commentary about the lasting legacy of this. But the one thing that every single article, even the critical one, 
ones could all agree on that it still was an important film. Regardless of if there are things that we would say, hey, you know what, maybe that wasn't perfect, but it was so important for what it did for bringing um, this community, this world, into the living rooms of the everyday American, much like somebody like Gene Hackman's character, who's like a representative for, uh, you know, the ultra-conservative American kind of Christian personality type, or the Tipper Gore, we've got to censor everything type. Like, he's kind of an amalgamation of those things. And how it is important to be like, hey, guess what? I know you have these presuppositions about certain people that you might not be familiar with, but you too are part of the family, right? Uh, and so there's kind of, I don't know, there's a really sweet message. Um, I will say I did think it kind of ended on a weird note. I, the ending kind of just came out of nowhere. Like, I thought because it was a farce, I was expecting a little bit more like Gene Hackman's wig was going to fall off and the news reporters were going to chase him or they were going to, like something. I was waiting for one more like foil in the plan and that didn't happen and then all of a sudden the credits just start rolling and I was like wait what the fuck I was like okay so I was a little confused I was like that kind of snuck up on me it felt a little anticlimactic but overall obviously enjoyed the film and there's tons to talk about here Uh, I think it's also interesting that Chivo was the DP so there's stuff we can talk about in terms of the setting the lighting um, how it was actually shot with some of the like the 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 longer takes Um, and then of course I think just uh, set design is fantastic costumes all kinds of stuff we can talk about not to mention fucking performances so we'll do that but but of course, we gotta pay the bills, so you know, let's do a little bit of a sell, selling our souls a little bit. Yeah. All right, but before we continue, you know what we gotta do? We gotta give a shout out to our awesome sponsor, Storyblocks. Look, Storyblocks is the complete stock solution, providing an unlimited library of over a million plus royalty free, high quality video, audio, and images through cost effective subscription plans. They have subscriptions for every budget, so you can choose a plan that works for you based on the selection that they offer. And they also always have a constant, expanding, changing rotation of stock footage to help creators tell their unique and authentic stories. Restock is their commitment to increase representation in stock media by hiring creators from marginalized communities to create content that is more reflective of the diverse world that we live in. I use Storyblock. Wisecrack uses Storyblocks. Use freaking Storyblocks. They got everything you might need. Soundtracks. They've got images, they've got videos, they've got effects if you're using fancy graphic stuff. Head over to storyblocks.com slash wisecrack and you can learn all about what they've got to offer. That's storyblocks.com slash wisecrack or you can click the link down in the show notes. All right, back to the show. All right, so now we're going to start unpacking this film per the huge, but I do want to give a reminder that we are live on YouTube, so if you've got comments, thoughts, contributions, please hit us up down in the chat. We will definitely be uh, addressing that. And then, of course, if you've got longer form things, yeah, you can you can email us uh, at uh, movies at wisecrack.co, movies at wisecrack.co with any of your thoughts. Of course, we have a mailbag sesh at the end. All right, so... First things first, Riley, we already cracked the can a little bit on is it hashtag problematic. So let's yeah. talk about Hank Azaria. Oh, Jesus and, Christ. And talk, okay. Okay. So go ahead. What do we think? Like when, when you mentioned Hank Azaria, you almost seemed a little bit like, oh, shit, that's a whole can of worms. So let's let's open the can. It is. I mean, it's like it is, you know, I remember watching it when I was younger and just being so entertained. And, you know, so this movie came out the year I was born. So it's like, again, I've always, I've, <laughs> I was born when the birdcage came out. And I remember like being younger and just like, you know, 
he's super funny, super entertaining. And then watching it, and especially now, you know, again, it was the 90s. And like, we all should have been like, okay. But what learning, um, actually, I was I was telling you guys this a little bit before we started recording, but um, I was learning more about Le Cage the 70s French film. And um, I didn't know, because I haven't seen that original film, but apparently the... Um, made in the original was played by a black actor uh but then as they were casting this I don't know and if you guys know this I apologize for people who don't know I'm just gonna tell a story of like how Hank Azaria came to how that role came to be in that um Mike Nichols saw him in uh something and he's like you know do you want to be in this film and we're doing a table read like you can pick any small part you want to do we'd love to have you be part of this project and so when he did a reading he actually he's like oh I'll read the stage manager role um but then he added this like caricature accent to the stage manager role for some reason and everyone thought it was very funny and so then he 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 just kind of I think read a bunch of small parts and Agador was a much smaller role it was like he was like in one scene in the original version of the script but they just loved like this quote like big quotes this take on Agador and um so they're like and so then Elaine May went and like did a whole rewrite and made his part much larger and they're like we want you to be Agador Spartacus Spartacus. what a great fucking name incredible name um but it is I mean it's a lot of it's so funny because it's like I actually didn't realize for till till I mean like you know years later when I was older that Hank Azaria is a white dude I I didn't know that and then I remember learning that I'm like oh no oh no and then it's like you know he even has a line of like you know, he's asking, like, why aren't you going to put me in the show? And he's like, am I too primitive? And I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ. Like, it's, 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 it's tough. It's tough. Okay, let me ask a broader question about this tendency then. Like, I'm thinking of Hank Azaria, who also obviously famously is Apu on Simpsons, or was, I should say. Um, and I'm thinking of, like, back in the day, can we say back in the day for 25 years ago? Back in the day you used to have character actors that would do this. And I'm thinking of another character actor that does this a lot, Alfred Molina. Who, uh, Alfred Molina has played a Spaniard, he has played Middle Eastern, he's played you know, know uh, people of European descent. So what I wonder is, is are we in an age where like that type of character actor no longer exists? Because it used to be it used to be a sort of badge of honor if you could do these other accents and, um, you know, kind of like move in between. If you had maybe a, a look about you that would kind of fit between, you know, you could do um, Latino or you could do um, like Middle Eastern, like I said, or something like that. So is this like, is that type of character actor, is that is that gone? Um, and now it's going to be much more precise about the roles that you can, that you can fit into? I think it's like, <laughs> you know... I think what the industry has come to realize is that roles and people who are not white aren't just like characters, they're people. And so it's like, you know, instead of like Hank is yeah. being like, oh, I'm going to be this Guatemalan character. It's like, it's, it's like, it's, mm. it's, we're not doing caricatures of non-white people anymore. And so it's like, and, and we shouldn't have been. And so it's like to have these actors who, I, I didn't know Alfred Molina had had done all those kinds of roles, but it's like you know, it's with Apu with with Agador Spartacus. It's like it's you know, it was almost just like a bit. I mean, I'm thinking this is like 
very extreme, but also Agatha Spartacus is very extreme, of like Mickey Rooney and Breakfast at Tiffany's. It's like, people are like, oh, Mickey Rooney's like a big character actor and he just is like this unbelievable, yeah. like unbelievably grotesquely racist part in Breakfast at Tiffany's. But like, yeah. it was not really, you know, people watch that and they're like, oh, he's so fun. And it's like, my my God, it's like if this was extreme, that was on another level. And so, but that was in what? Like the 60s? And this was in the 90s? And it's only like now that it's like, oh, maybe we shouldn't <laughs> do that. Maybe that's not a badge yeah, yeah. of honor to do that anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Ryan, what do you think about this whole the character actor thing? Is it a, is it a thing anymore? Well, it's, it's a weird subject. Because like, I mean, no, obviously I think that it's not in vogue now uh, you know to to but like yeah. Nathan Lane I was trying to find this article that uh uh that Nathan Lane was interviewing and you know he's on the record as saying like look like in his opinion you know uh that that he 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 says his whole career would be very limited if he was just uh you know if he was only playing gay characters and stuff you know or which I guess is the opposite you know if if like as a straight and and he was talking about how Mark Ruffalo was perfect for this role where I think where he had AIDS or something and played a gay man and and how awesome that you know his performance was and he thinks that that's a one of the beauties of acting so I mean I see that that point of view but I also you know and, but then there's this I think it's two conversations it's it's the nature of acting which is embodying another person and and stuff but then there's also this whole other conversation of representation and it's like all right well you have this big Hollywood movie and yeah, you, you know, out of, there's a million, you know, gay care, gay, actual gay people that could have played this role that are actors, but you went and found, you know, somebody who wasn't and went out, out of your way to, and then also on top of that made them way over the top. So yeah, I get both sides of that argument in a weird way. And I don't, you know, to me, I, it's one of those things where if it works, it works sometimes. And I, and, and whether it's right or wrong, I don't know. I'm not here. I, I can't show you that yeah. meeting on this podcast. A friend of mine posted something on Insta recently, and he it was an interview with, with someone. I don't remember who it was, but it was a gay actor, and he was saying, like, if you look at all the gay icons, Harvey Milk, um, things like that, they haven't been played by mm-hmm. gay actors. They've been played by, you know, straight actors. Um, a lot of times this happens. And he was like, it's, it's a lot of actors don't come out in Hollywood because when you come out, you get cast as the gay character. Rather than being like, yeah, I'm gay, but can you just fucking cast me as the dad or cast me as the guy or cast me as the person, the, the fire person or whatever the fuck it is. Like, just cast me. It doesn't have to be you're casting me as the gay friend all the time. And a lot of times that does kind of hamstring a lot of people um, in their abilities to actually engage in this artistic craft. So there is like a lot of stuff going on here. And I, I will say, like, I mean, I, I recently was auditioning for a play, a Sarah Kane play, which she's one of my favorite playwrights ever, if you know Sarah Kane. It was a play called Cleansed. Anyway, um, there are a lot of, like, there's, like, trans characters, there's queer characters in the play. And when I was sitting down with the director, um, they were talking to me about one role, but then they were like, look, if for some reason we find you fitting for another role, would you be interested? And then he said, but first, uh, do you identify as queer? And I was like, I, I actually loved it because it's this really, like, reputable theater company that is trying to make make sure that they are elaborately expressing and representing um, 
adequate to what the script demands. And I was like, listen, I was like, I'm not. I don't identify as queer. I've never lived as a, as a queer man. I was like, so I, it wouldn't even be fair for me. Even if I could say in all my philosophical, and we had like a lovely philosophical chat about how I think everybody is actually queer and I don't believe in, you know, whatever. And in binaries instead, like, I was like, but I've never lived that. I don't, I don't carry that, that weight at all. And I have not lived in that community. And so I was like, it wouldn't even be fair for me to do it. And he's like, that's wonderful. That's great. Um, and so stuff like that, I think is actually really important. And, and I don't know, I kind of feel like if it goes for like a straight actor playing a gay role, I feel like that's vastly different than a gay actor playing a straight role because we have decades and decades and decades where we've been able to do that as a straight man, where I've been able to play the gay role, but it hasn't worked the opposite way. And so I'm kind of like, you know what, even if it tilts the pendulum a little bit in the opposite direction, I'm kind of okay with that for now. To, taking a step back, as we say in activist circles, right? I'm kind of okay with taking a step back a little bit. I don't know. It, it doesn't really bother me too much. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Riley, you're an actor. I am. You, you vibe yeah, with that? Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's like represent, <laughs> representation fucking matters. Like, you know, um, I actually saw a great... A wonderful clip from the Sarah Silverman podcast, uh, the Sarah Silverman show today, about non-Jewish actors playing Jewish roles and how like she's like you know with these you know for example um, like Catherine Hahn is going to play Joan Rivers and like with Rachel Brosnahan is Maisel and you know XYZ on and on and on like she's like you know these actors in her words she's like you know these actors aren't doing anything wrong but you have all of similarly with like all these big gay icons you have all these like especially like iconic like Jewish roles for Jewish women all being played by non-Jewish actors and that it's like you know that's it's it's that's one thing when it's like oh just being Jewish is part of who they are but then it's another thing that's like it's like being Jewish is their life that's like their their identity they really live in like I am a Jewish woman and for, for it to consistently not be played by any Jewish women is you know she's like it's just it's that's just frustrating especially um she's like you know then it's like sometimes people get into the stereotype of like uh, a kind of like new yorky accent or like heightened things you know maybe like heightened like yiddish or whatever she's like it's it's just really frustrating and so she's like i'm not saying she's like, cuz then she also said the same thing she's like yes we're acting but also especially right now representation really really matters and I would love to see more Jewish women playing Jewish roles and so it, it's it's the same kind of thing you know it's like if an actor like especially you know with all these like like you were saying that it's like coming out can really like hamstring you it's like oh well now I'm gonna be typecast as XYZ that doesn't happen with straight actors right. it's not yeah. like oh well I'm straight so I'm only gonna be playing these straight roles like that that's not <laughs> that doesn't happen and so it's like yeah, yeah. we do no. it, we need things we gotta change some shit <laughs> <laughs> You know, speaking of speaking of casting, so apparently it was supposed to originally be Steve Martin as yeah. Armand, and then Robin Williams was supposed to play mm -hmm. Albert, but Robin Williams had just come off of doing Mrs. Doubtfire, and he was like, I'd rather play a more subdued mm -hmm. character. Can you imagine if it was Steve Martin and Robin Williams? It would have, I mean, one, just a different comedy dynamic, but I think the fact that Nathan Lane comes in there, who is a queer man himself also, I think it actually adds a lot of, well, you were talking about, like, the humanity of it, the sensitivity, even though Robin Williams is a brilliant actor, um, and I'm not saying that he wouldn't have been able to, like, bring the pathos. I'm sure he would have. There's something about the way that the casting works here that, and just Robin Williams as the kind of subdued. I love watching Robin Williams as yes. the non-zany oh character. God. I love I love him in those roles. 
But so that's kind of really interesting too. That was it a, a scheduling conflict or what was it that caused the shift? Do, um, do I know? do because right. I was just listening to Nathan Lane talk about this. Um, in that, uh, Rob <laughs> Williams was like, "I just came off doing Miss Doubtfire. I don't want to do a, like back to back drag roles." And he's he was more interested in playing like the straight man. Um, and then Mike Nichols saw Nathan Lane in a Neil Simon play, and he went and he like approached him after the show. Mm. And Nathan Lane talks about how, like, before, you know, before the show started, he looked out into the house and saw Mike Nichols and was like, oh, fuck me. And um, he approached him after and he's like, hey, I'm doing this film. And he's like, it's, <laughs> I'm directing, Elaine May wrote it, Robin Williams, Gene Hackman, are you in? And he's like, oh, my, like, I'm what in. are you talking? What is that even a question? <laughs> and um, yeah. so it was, he's like, I want Nathan Lane to do it. But then Nathan Lane was like, that's there's a scheduling conflict because he was set to do the revival of a funny thing happened on the way to the forum around the same time that filming was supposed to start and so he he had to pull out of the birdcage he's like i can't do this anymore i'm contractually obligated to be in this other thing that i agreed to before this and so they started looking for different people to to play albert um but mike nichols kept coming back to nathan lee he's like i just can't it's it's you like it's no one but you is there any way you can move your schedule around and so they they made it work um and i mm. think it's just i mean especially like to be because this was a role that launched nathan lane's film career I mean, he was already like a very well-known like you know uh, broadway actor but like to be you know the fact that both like both robin williams and mike nichols didn't they like they weren't pushing to have like another big movie star at that time that they're like you know and Robin Williams who was already mega famous then to put Nathan Lane like a much less known actor in terms of like the Hollywood world up with Robin Williams in like this queer film in the 90s like that was such a huge gamble that like that that I think that was just such faith in the casting and and the story and and everything about it that then just like launched Nathan Lane. In then he got Mouse after Hunt that. after this. And that, <laughs> yeah. that really solidified his career in Hollywood. I loved Mouse Hunt. Come on. <laughs> hey, Ryan, what what is your, I mean, since we're kind of talking about a little bit at least here, uh, tangentially, we're talking about Mike Nichols here. Oh, yeah. I mean, Mike Nichols is known not only as being a great director, but one of the reasons he's known as being a great director is for getting the best performances out of people. Well, I mean, he's one right? of the granddaddies so of what, improv, too, you know. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah, I mean, he and Elaine May had an improv duo, a comedy duo together for years on Broadway. Um, that was Elaine and yeah, uh, that was Nichols and May. So um, yeah, absolutely. He's a Second City guy from from what I remember. Is I that right? Believe um, right? I think he was yeah. a Second City guy. I don't know. Yeah, Second City in Chicago. So um, so we're talking about like yeah, like building the foundations of what we understand as contemporary comedy today, right? So, but what do you think? What do you think about Mike Nichols? I mean, I clearly love the shit out of him, uh, and he. I mean, obviously, okay. The Graduate was such a big movie at the time. I, it, it not only, um, you know, if anyone who hasn't seen it, it just, the, it, it has, the, the, for one, the Simon and Garfunkel soundtrack was like the biggest uh, soundtrack of the world Great. at that time. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, really, it's one of those generational films, people call it. It encapsulates kind of a feeling people had at a time, which you don't have very many of those in any given generation. I put maybe like Fight Club for the 90s is one of those or something, where it just kind of, you get a feeling of a whole mindset. 
And uh, he's just great at that, you know, and that takes a, a humanist sensibility, you'd call it. But his first big, huge movie that was awesome that we got to mention, too, is Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Oh, yeah. Which is just like That's a right. black and white, like two-part, two-person two melodramatic play almost put to film. It's awesome. for If you're like an up-and-coming filmmaker, definitely make, go out of your way to watch Who's Afraid of, Afraid of Virginia Woolf? You can just see how, you know... If you get good actors and a good script, what you can do is super little. You know, it's just filmed in a house and two people, two people doing it. It's great. Um, I want to say there's one other big movie that he made that I love, Postcards from the Edge, uh, uh, with Melanie Griffith and Meryl Streep about, I, oh, about Carrie Fisher, I think, from Star huh. Wars, and just how her her like a messed up uh, childhood or growing up with a mom who's a drug addict. If that's a great movie too. I mean, yeah, all of his movies, like I said at the beginning, just are so different, but just but also uh, are kind of these great character studies um, with with also with really cool camera work and great scripts. So that's what I think yeah, about yeah, Mike yeah. Nichols. What do we think about the performances in this? Then I mean, obviously we talked about the Hank Azaria performance, but you know, Riley was talking about you know the Nathan Lane character that everybody talks about in all the reviews about how it's big. It's a very big performance, mm -hmm. but. There's also those moments of um, just intense groundedness, for lack of a better term. And so the question is, is what is this film exploring through this type of performance? Is it that somebody is... Go ahead, I was yeah, just going to say, it's a, to me, it's a satire, obviously. And, and, and a thing I would put it akin to uh, is set like South Park, right? Which to me has very obviously insane characters and predicaments uh, uh, and situations, but also has a grounded heart at the at the center of it that makes you care about all this crazy <laughs> shit. It's like, wow, you know, sometimes you're yeah. like, this stuff is so insane. I can't believe I give a shit about this stupid situation that it's in. So I think that, that he was going for a vibe that was very much making fun of the times of the 90s, you know, the kind of stuffy, like you said, Tipper Gore, conservative like we got to save the children aspect, yeah. you know, we got to save the children from yeah. all these gay people, you know, we can't uh, expose them to that. Like that, you know, which was, you know, there was rampant homophobia in the nineties. I mean, that from, from as someone who like, you know, grew up there, I just remember that being, there was a shift in the culture that I've witnessed in my lifetime of, you know, people calling kids gay and stuff at school mm -hmm. and were way worse than that. And then uh, to, to now how like that kid that would say that would just be run out of school, you know, and that's a good thing, you know? Uh, right. So like that's been, so I think that, that this movie is a time of that period where, you know, Will and Grace was this big uh, subvertive show in the 90s because, oh, wow, the, you know, they have gay characters who weren't gay, you know, at the end of the time, at the end of the day. But, but wow, it was groundbreaking for just them even, you know, go, uh, put, putting that on a network TV. So this is, I think, the same effect, which is just we're going to, you know, we're going to uh, uh, make this hardcore satire about, you know, the conservatives and the and even the gay community too but then also what's cool about it is that i feel like if you made that movie today you would just go so hard on the conservative right or something to make it, it would basically just be like look at these fucking stupid idiots at the end of the day and you know mm -hmm. how much smarter we are was i think this what's good about mike nichols is he 
makes fun of them, but also, you know, Gene Hackman's a, you know, a human character at the end, and he learns something, and at least shows that the people are human and can learn and grow, as opposed to being these just buff- only buffoons that need to be taken down a notch, you know, and we're going to, you know, get, stick it to them right. kind of vibe. Because it's like, it's, that's such a big theme, but that's not the heart of the story. The heart of the story is about, like, family, and, like, what yeah. relationships do you value, and, like, who are you, and, and, and you're, you know, it's uh, 100%, 100%. Yeah, um, it, it's interesting because I'm thinking about um, what is Gene Hackman's character? Like, is he is he a stereotype or is he a caricature? Or is he a pretty good embodiment of, uh, of an, an ultra-conservative Christian who is a part of, like, the moral majority that grew up in the late 70s and 80s? You know, Pat Buchanan listening. I mean, at one point he's like, he gets all excited because... Um, Nathan Lane says something he's like oh my god Rush Limbaugh yeah, said that so yeah. it's like a Rush Limbaugh listening <laughs> and a, a lot of the names a lot of the names that he drops are like 90s politicians right. or 90s pop culture he says like Billy Graham is too progressive <laughs> yeah. at one point I'm like okay I'm like that's fucking hilarious right so the question is, is is he written with a sensitivity where he's still human or is he too much of a character now I grew up in an evangelical environment I went for my bachelor's degree to a hyper-conservative evangelical university. Uh, My father is still a hyper-evangelical Baptist. So I have been in this environment. I have dated people in this world. I have gone to church with people in this world. He's pretty spot on. (laughs) Um, and, And I don't think it's like poorly represented the problem is is it might seem like he's the bad guy because that's how it's pitched in this film obviously um but i don't think it's done unfairly i think it's a pretty good representation of a certain type of uh political conservative in in the united states and then i think with nathan lane like yeah there's a little bit of an over-the-top performance but at the same time there is such the the humanity when when nathan what's nathan's character i totally forgot albert when albert sits there and is like wearing the pink socks after after oh my god yep that's right he's done this amazing he's done a great job of passing uh, as straight and then he sits there and he corrects how he's sitting and he fumbles a little bit and then he's got pink socks mm-hmm. on and it's like I'm doing my fucking best but I just had to have a little bit of a pop right don't we have a little bit of a color accent and they look at him like they're disappointed in him and he is crushed and at that point you're like okay so this this person is not a caricature. This person is not um, uh, uh, some sort of persona. Um, but this person has layers and layers mm-hmm. in depth, right? And that 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 scene is very tragic and heartbreaking. That is my favorite scene broken. in the entire movie. That just like the 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 shot of him coming in the door. I mean, for just like just the acting in those like two minutes alone, without saying a word of like him coming in. He starts yeah. walking how he naturally does and then stops himself and like is trying so hard, sits, crosses, like readjusts. I just, my heart yeah, yeah. breaks every single time. And then it's like, because then, oh my God, he's like, I just, I so badly wanted to, wanted to impress you and wanted to, wanted to, you know, help you. Mm. But then of course you still get the laugh when it's like, it's so grounded. And then he just goes, but you hate me. You both hate me. And then he leaves. And it's like, and then it just like that, that still makes me like, it makes me cry. It makes me laugh that moment. And then the scene of 
him and Robin Williams um, <laughs> bus stop where he's like, I'm going to the cemetery with my toothbrush. And then he, um, <laughs> Robin Williams meets him there and, and he gives him the palimony agreement and, and the two of them just like really recommitting to each other. And that, that moment, like just those moments in the whirlwind of like how broad this is, those ground the whole film for me. Um, that and oh my god that and then like when Robin Williams tells when he tells Val the son who I think is the main villain of the movie Val sucks but (laughs) when oh my god he sucks but when he tells yeah the fact that he put his that that he put his family in that position in the first place is super shitty yeah 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 like so shitty like we know Gene Hackman's an asshole we know he's an idiot we know he sucks he's in love like uh, like he's ruining (laughs) everyone's life he is like it's just ridiculous, but it's like when he's That's telling right. Robin, like when he's first, you know, when like they're they're redoing, or he's telling, he's like when he's telling him that they need to redo the whole house, and Robin Williams is like, "What are you talking about? Like, no, like this is art. Like, what do you what do you mean?" And then he like told he he like smears the foundation off of his face, puts it on the wall. Oh, that's fucked. And then he's yeah. like, "You just need to send Albert away." And he's like, "What the fuck?" And Robin Williams is about to leave, and he's like, "I know who, at least like I know who I am. Like, fuck the senator. I don't care what he yeah. thinks." Like, yeah, that was a good scene. Oh, fantastic. Val Val is the villain of the movie. He is a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> Can I, I say, like, like, when I think of this movie, a scene, my, I wouldn't say it's my favorite scene, but it's such a subversive shot. And I, like, I can just see Mike Nichols laughing while he's editing it, is when Val's introduced to the movie. And, you know, you've been introduced to Robin Williams. Val comes in. He's this young <laughs> hunk. And you, like, think that Robin Williams is going <laughs> to, yeah. is like his boy toy. And yeah, yeah, it's yeah. his son. You know? Yeah. And, like, but, it's he t- brilliant. He totally makes you like. Uh, so, uh, he makes you even think the way that, that he touches his chin in such a yes, crazy way. Yes, even the way oh, he touches yeah. his chin. The hair, I- like, yeah. Yeah, 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 fantastic. Oh, it yeah, was yeah, such yeah. a brilliant intro, <laughs> so and then you know, up. like having the different. It's like you have the white wine chilling in the fridge. I only drink red, and so do you. <laughs> oh, oh, I mean, like that for just in terms of performance. That first, the first scene between. Albert and Armand when when Nathan Lane's getting ready and refuses to go on stage that is in my some of the funniest shit I've ever seen in my yeah. life oh my god <laughs> okay then let's talk real quick favorite scenes favorite sequences is there a moment where I mean you just did Riley it's the one where uh where where Albert oh, comes in socks. wearing the suit pink socks yeah 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 ryan do you is there a favorite sequence is there something that stands out like now that you've just watched it kind of on like a refresher is there something the next time someone says the birdcage that's gonna fucking stand out most to you it, it, it was the ones i've already said with gene hackman singing we are family and just how tender of a funny weird moment <laughs> that is um and then the, the one we just talked about where val all send his son but then i will also mention just the opening shot and like the the bit drone in on the birdcage uh, uh, that's an awesome, with We Are Family playing, mm-hmm. that's a fun intro to a movie, you know, mm-hmm. like, you're just, it gets you pumped, I guess, it, you know, obviously the, using that song is cheating, because it's so fun, but <laughs> it's a, it's great. And real it's, quick, I want to jump in, together. I want to jump into the chat real quick, uh, I, I, I don't know if it's, I think it's supposed to be Dread Angel, but it's DR3AD underscore ANG3, and then uh, L, so I'm assuming it's Dread Angel, says, are they serious when they say straight people don't get typecast? I was saying, and I think what Riley was saying, not that straight people don't get typecast, but don't get typecast as straight. 
as right? straight. So yeah. yeah, yeah, it's not that you become the straight guy. Um, that doesn't mean that like that like if you're the Rock and you're like macho macho as fuck, that no one is ever gonna be like, oh, he he like that. That people don't think automatically of like a kind of like stereotypical masculine straight dude. Sure, possibly, and maybe he is typecast in certain ways. But I think the idea was is more about your identity position in society. I think what we were talking about, Riley, is that yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like there's there's a difference between it's like, oh, you're typecast as like the nerd or like the best friend right. or, you know, the popular girl. But that that's nothing to do with like with with, you know, being gay your or core identity, or, right, or right. Queer, or core identity, anything about yeah. that. Yeah. OK. And then um, real quick, Anonymous says, hey, Wisecrack, your videos inspire me to declare philosophy as my major. Thanks, a-holes. Well, first I want to say, yes, <laughs> I, am, I, I apologize and you're welcome at the same time. And then secondly, JK, but any advice coming out to my parents as a philosophy major? Uh, don't. Just say that you're doing law and then... Uh, and <laughs> what? That's your advice? <laughs> <laughs> say Why? you're doing say you're doing English um or something. Yeah, yeah, you're doing English. English literate. No, I'm kidding. Um just say it. Philosophy is a, a one of the most hireable professions because they score consistently. Philosophy majors score consistently across the board on the tests um at an average clip at a higher rate than every other major. Um, philosophy is becoming more important these days in terms of like tech ethics and technology. But if you're going to do philosophy, definitely try to do something that's also more hands-on, maybe like computer engineering as a minor, something where you can do, where you can like, where you can put yourself into the market. And I hate speaking like this as a radical lefty. It, it hurts my heart to, to say to condescend to the market, but condescend to the market by doing tech ethics or like, you know, being work, do work on like digital management or communications or something like that. And, and then that'll help. But but do it. Philosophy is a great major. So, um, okay. So a couple things I did want to ask. Uh, this is a farce. Um, and we talked a little yeah. bit about how it's like satire and it's kind of slapstick and over the top. And I was wondering, I don't think you can make a farce in 2021, 2022. C can you remind me the definition of that word? Because I know that that and satire are different, but it's like, a, uh, <laughs> give me an example. Well, so like sat <laughs> sat yeah, satire is like an intentional effort to draw um, attention to like contradictions in society, right? It's meant to mimic and kind of um, expose certain elements of a culture, a society, subculture, whatever. A farce tends to use physical comedy, slapstick, um, and things like that. So it's a little bit more, I would almost kind of call like an innocent form of comedy. A lot of physical comedy, um, like one of one of the one of the most famous plays, and they did. I think John Ritter was in a film adaptation of it. It's called Noises off it's like people coming in and out of doors at the same time like i'm looking for ryan ryan's looking for riley and uh, uh i i come into a door and i'm like ryan have you seen uh have you seen riley and you're like no i'm looking for her. And i'm like oh i just saw her. she went around this corner and then i go in this way and then riley comes up to me and riley's like oh riley have you seen uh or riley's like austin have you seen ryan and i'm like oh. and then like the phone rings and i pick up the phone and then it's grandma and grandma's like oh riley hold on one second and then like uh, you step out and then ryan comes in right at that moment it's like that it's kind of like silly goofy a little bit more physical comedy really fast and snappy and things like that i'm realizing but what I wonder, that what i do in my videos is a farce apparently <laughs> you you oh do you do you I'm definitely have farcical elements a farcition <laughs> but like do you think we can make these th like are, are, are we too jaded like i was wondering like are we too like we've gone through ironic detachment and farce is no longer funny for us because we need like heavy hitting That's things and if it's yeah. and if it's just 
Hank Azaria tripping in the kitchen and falling over, we don't laugh at that anymore. <laughs> oh my God. I don't. I disagree. I think that far we farces are exactly what we need right now, and everyone's <laughs> looking for a good old just simple mm-hmm. laugh. You know, at least with their entertainment, not like like everything. You know, they don't have to take anything seriously. But for some things, they would like to just yes, let's laugh at each other and have a good old time, and no one take it too seriously is I think a, a desire in way more people's minds than it probably comes off as. Um, but you're right. It is hard, and it's hard to make do it right. And it's uh, – uh, so, yeah. What do you all think? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I agree. God, I love a farce. I mean, it's like this it, – it, this, especially just thinking of Birdcage specifically, it's like, you know – for me, a classic farce is like a, a, the dinner party gone wrong and, you know, like this. And it feels yes. very Moliere. It feels very like, you know, like it, it's very, it's just like such a classical f- form of storytelling and of comedy. And I think like when done well, because I've seen some farces that are like, you know, even I've seen like Moliere done, like like Tartuffe done not great. Um, but like when farce is done well, it's kick ass and it's so funny. Like, but it's like to find that, to find that sweet spot. And I think that's for me, why this movie works so well. It's like you, you have the farce, you have the big broad comedy, but it, but you have the heart to it. And I think like if there isn't the, for me, at least if there isn't the heart, then it's not funny. Cause then I'm, then I'm just, I'm watching it just for a, for a cheap laugh. Which well, is fine and, well, that's, and that's the point. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah think and that's some, also Some fun. things is, it, there's some, you know, not all art, but yeah, it's fun. And, and I, the person in the chat, Tim's just brought up that Airplane is the most famous farce. Airplane mm-hmm. was such a big movie in my life. All the naked up. gun I movies. I had never laughed harder in my life than when I first saw Airplane at the time. <laughs> and w- would you argue, Riley, that does that movie have heart to it? You know, um, yeah, do you think of heart point. when you think of yeah. airplane? I mean, it is a great time. Yeah. You can't argue that, I don't think. But yeah, I get it. it's like for, you know, and I, this is just now not even think about farce, but just comedy in general. It's like I, at least my sensibilities, I don't like mean comedy. I don't like comedy mm-hmm. that's like shitting sure. on other people. I think that's a really cheap form of comedy and I'm not about it. It's not funny to me. And if you want an example of Riley's sensibility of comedy, go to her comedy, go to go to her Twitter page and there's a, a gummy bear conversation that she has that is her pinned tweet. And in this gummy bear conversation, there is nothing mean, there's no mean comedy. It is it is wholesome as fuck. I am not a wholesome comic by any means, <laughs> but like comedy that's just like, that's just insult comedy, you know, yeah, stuff yeah, no, like know that, that it's like, that is so, that's so, it's so easy and that's so boring to me. And yes. so something like a farce or satire or whatever, it's like there and with airplane, airplane's so fucking smart. Like it is so, it's so brilliant. And it, it I don't know. I, I just Hell think yeah. like. I don't know. So yeah, I guess it doesn't even it doesn't even to have heart. I mean, God. But could you do airplane now? Like, would people care about making something like airplane now? Well, the, that there was this whole what like disaster movie, date movie people forever right. that were, c- were cranking them out, and everyone was like, but all right, a spoof, all right. But is they, a spoof the same yeah, as a farce? Yeah, those were spoofs. Like, 
Yeah. Airplane wasn't yeah. a spoof of well, anything else. Well, no, it was a spoof of of the airplane disaster movies that were yeah. kind of popular. And at that like time. Right. Naked Gun, like Naked Gun is a spoof of the spy movies, and uh-huh. but it's kind Austin of Powers far- is a spoof of like James Bond. Yeah. This is good. Yeah, if if people are That's fucking really interesting comedy theorists. <laughs> yeah, I know. The difference between a spoof and a farce and has has the age of the spar of the farce the sparse of uh, the, the farce sparse. is it gone? Yeah. Okay. So so because because this podcast is called I hope not too. Called, it's too good. It is good. Because it's called <laughs> Show Me the Meaning. I got one thing that I definitely have to bring up and mm-hmm. I don't know if you noticed it, but so there's a bit where uh, Armand goes to visit uh, Val's mother, and Albert comes with, and Albert's waiting in the waiting room of this office space, and the secretary is reading, and the secretary <laughs> is reading Nietzsche. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, clearly that's a choice that Mike Nichols is like, you are reading a book by Nietzsche. It could have been anything. Why Nietzsche, and, and does it have something to do with the change of the title from uh, in in the French, it's translated into English as like the crazy cage, right? To the bird cage, and I have an idea, and I found a quote from Nietzsche where he talks about a bird being let free, right? And so Nietzsche's famous for like the death of God, that you know the structures that once kind of told us or destined us to live certain ways, that that's kind of fallen apart, but nevertheless the shadow is still cast on us, and we still live as though there's some sort of structure. And then of course how terrifying it is to realize that we don't have any structure that's grounding us, but that there's just like this um, unbounded potency of freedom, right? And so here's a small little quote where he says, "Oh, the poor bird that felt itself free." and now strikes against the walls of this cage. So is there something about the title of the birdcage as being like restriction in society and um, are, are Armand and Albert, are they birds that are trapped in this cage? But then once freedom is opened, there's that difficulty of flying and, and, and what does that mean to be free? And, and what do we think? Like, is there something there? Am I reading too much into this? Is there something about the title of the birdcage that's, uh, that's important about freedom and not being shackled by like the bars of society? Or is it just cool because in a birdcage, um, you can kind of stand there and you can do like a cool pole dance uh, in between the bars. <laughs> And that's the name of the yeah. and that's the name of the nightclub. Like, what what do we think? Hmm. I mean, like, oh, you go, you go, Ryan, you go. Oh no, no, I was going to say I was hoping Austin first to show me the Nietzsche meeting in that because I was wondering <laughs> the same thing. Riley, what what was your take? That's so interesting. I mean, like, I think I mean again, I'm going to come back to my take as Val being the villain of this <laughs> film, and that it's like Albert and Armand were free. At the beginning, and then Val put them in that goddamn cage and like made a cage out of their home, like fully redecorated it. Like, you know, it just he he put that on them and he, you know, he was saying, like, well, it's because of the center, it's because of all this. And it's like, well, you're the one doing it. It's like they like they didn't care. It's like they or not they I mean like um Albert and Armand, like they're like, fuck what he thinks. Like yeah. I know who I am. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna that's bullshit. But right. Val, Val is the one putting that on them. Um, and so it's really, it's just, you know, it's like in, in this theme of, of, of family and like for, for, for the family member to be the one who puts you in that cage, to, for the family member, for like your son to be the one who's like, well, because I love this person so much, I'm going to, you know, like almost <laughs> break the entire family 
bring them down and restrict it in such a way that it could all fall apart for my own needs. Yeah, that yeah. is an interesting, uh, yeah, I, I think you just showed everyone the meaning there, Riley. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, <laughs> but, but, but it is funny when you think about it, how just the uh, love quadrangle, <laughs> or however you want to call it, like everyone is doing something because they love the other person and mm-hmm. getting the other person that they love mm. to do something because of it, like, you know, the... And and so at the end of the day, you know, obviously it starts with how rigid Gene Hackman's character is. But you're right; other people along the way could have put their foot down and said, "No, this isn't right." But they all did it because they loved another person, and that's just a beautiful, um, I don't know, yeah, beautiful it's, thing. It's like throughout; it's it's you know, it's family; it's all these relationships. It's like it's like what do you value? Who do you like? What relationships do you value? Or like what what is important? To, what is the most important thing to you? And so, I mean, there's even a moment where, like, Robin Williams says it very clearly, you know, when he's when he's telling Val that, like, um, that Albert is going to stay and try and play it straight or whatever, and he's not going to go away. And Val's like, what the fuck? And he's like, it came down to Albert or your mother, and I chose Albert. Mm-hmm. Like, it was, mm-hmm. it, that's, it's that simple. And, like, Val can't really wrap his head around that. And, but then, like, you know, he ends up telling his birth mom to come. And so then it's, like, that... Uh, who he doesn't know, who he hadn't met until yeah. until that night, and so it's like that that idea of him having this nuclear hetero family was more important to him than his actual like parent, and so it just it's like it's it's just watching, especially for Val, it's like all these different shifting priorities and shifting relationships. Whereas like for for Albert and Armand, like Albert, I think it has the purest sense of like I love my family, I'm gonna do you know whatever they need even though it's gonna hurt me and so it's like he'll 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 leave he'll try and play straight uncle Al. how about that whole sequence is great too i'm just like how about them dolphins and then like yeah. you know it's like you pierce the toast that whole thing and that or then you know doing coming in in drag as Catherine is him being like i love you so much i i value you so i'm gonna do this for you even though it's like val's worst nightmare right um yeah. But he does come in and saves the day, doesn't he? So. Oh my God. And then all the shit that he said, you know, as he's like playing along. That scene was great too, of like him talking to Gene Hackman at dinner and just like, just spewing out all of these like grotesque, hyper conservative <laughs> talking points. And yeah, Gene yeah. Hackman like eating it up. And yeah. Val just being like, you, you shouldn't talk about things you don't know about. And Gene Hackman's like, your mother's a very intelligent woman. Yes, <laughs> yes. It's so good. All right, I say we go ahead and wrap up the discussion there. Um, I, it's a great freaking movie. It's one of those ones mm-hmm. that, uh, what did I read? I read, it, it was put as like, if you think about queer struggles as like laying down bricks, this film uh, exists along this pathway that is still being constructed many miles back, but that its legacy is important and for what it does. So not only is it important, maybe socially, culturally, but also it's fucking fun. The performances are great. The direction is great. Obviously, go check out Mike Niggles' filmography as well. Um, Yeah, 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 yeah. So we'll go ahead and probably wrap the chat up there. And then what we got to do now, of course, is we got to dip into the mailbag real quick. So if y'all out there have thoughts about the birdcage, about its lasting legacy, if you have thoughts about anything we talked about in the past, Nightcrawler, Pan's Labyrinth, fuck, we even talked about Mother in our inaugural episode. I don't give a shit. If you have thoughts about stuff we have covered, (laughs) fucking email us at 
moviesatwisecrack.co, or you can call us at 1-213-534-8807. That's 1-213-534-8807. You can leave us a little voicemail. We're going to turn to a voicemail right now. Roll it. Hey, Wisecrack crew. This is Sterling from Illinois. I just finished your episode on Nightcrawler, and I'm going to keep this short. What do you guys think of the idea of Lou, the main character, as the embodiment of corporate personhood taken very literally? Thanks, y'all. Have a good day. Okay, basically, it's is Lou like the embodiment of corporate America, right? Or like the embodiment of corporate the business. Corporate personhood. Corporate personhood. Was- like like Mitt Romney, like cor- corporations are people, man. Like is this that is is yeah is Jake Gyllenhaal the embodiment of the Mitt Romney? Are corporations are people, man? Uh, is is he a, yeah uh, a, a human or a corporation as human essentially? Yeah, right. Okay, um, Ryan. No, well, I mean that's not what <laughs> Mitt Romney meant by that. But it, it, in terms of it, like like you could say like it, he's just driven to. For this just completely almost nihilistic, uh, uh, greedy, you know, drive that he has, and he'll do absolutely anything to get that. Um, but I, I mean, no, corporations don't go around, you know, willingly m- murdering people and stuff. Uh, <laughs> well, okay, I guess you can make an argument. What? <laughs> I'm just saying they don't. They try to do if they're going to do illegal things, they at least try to hide it more. I mean, I was. I guess this guy's getting away with it. So fuck, man. Uh, maybe I'm. Maybe this analogy doesn't work at all, and he's right. Uh, fuck. Uh, but yeah, I'd say that's the main difference. He he literally says he hates people. Okay, yeah. and. So do corporations hate people? I mean, I guess they are completely driven by just making themselves bigger so they care about only themselves. So, I mean, you can make that, you know, but usually, and then I guess you could say like, like they're trying to make their customers happy, which he is at the end of the day, like the people that he get, he makes this stuff for, they are happy with his products. So he's just in a very, I would say, I guess, immoral or gray area uh, morality industry uh, which you could name a whole handful of those as like even like gambling or something you know yeah if if is it good if you're a casino to be trying to get the worst you know addicts among us to come and waste all their money and is that moral for them to to make money off of that i mean you know that's a good question like uh uh uh, so i put them in that category of of corporate personhoods what do y'all think that's yeah, Riley, have you seen? Yeah, I have you but seen this me, Like this conversation is making me want to watch it. That's it's really, fascinating. Oh, you gotta see it's it. It's really awesome. good. Yeah, I mean, we kind of touched on it last week when we talked about the film. I, I think the best way to think about it is that what you get with Jake Gyllenhaal's character, Lou, is that he's not a person, right? I mean, we talked about the characteristics of psychopathy that he clearly exhibits, but I think even more than that, the reason, and then people also have done this he's with the okay, fucking our, devil. Like, well, people have also said like our <laughs> corporations. Uh, persons in the legal sense and if so do they exhibit the characteristics of psychopathy and there is actually mm. some like sociological research that's saying well if corporations are persons then they're psycho they're they're psych- psychopathic because they exhibit huh. all these characteristics but here's the thing i would say huh. it, it, without getting too much into that you know there's literature out there fucking do 
Do the research, as the kids say these days. Um, but what I would say is that Jake Gyllenhaal is clearly an embodiment of the institution that he's trying to impress, right? Which is why he's reading all those business books, which is why he uses those fucking self-help mantras. There's nothing authentic about him, and I think that would that, that would be the human element. The authenticity or the sincerity would be the human element, and that's not there because he's trying so hard to get ahead and to win because he's in that situation of desperation that he finds himself in, that I think his inhumanity comes across like he's just using corporate speak and that's all he knows how to do you know he's thinking about like fucking the leverage position that's why he I don't want to say anything actually to, to spoil it for Riley but that's why he does some of the things that he does um, because he doesn't want somebody to potentially threat his leverage position and um, he's, he's worried about the quarter and you know uh, the language that he uses is all just business speak and so maybe he is just the embodiment mm. of the institution that is what we call the corporation but well I, 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 I think you're totally right but i uh uh but also i do think it's important that the, in relation to the news to news media right like like and how 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 manipulative it is right and and so i think that those two things together make the movie so interesting all right yeah we can, yeah, we yeah. Can great <laughs> great frick great freaking movie check that shit out thanks um, for the comment all right, so it, yeah, definitely. Thanks for the comment. If you want to give us a, a call, you can. 1-213-534-8807. That's 1-213-534-8807. And of course, you can email us, movies at wisecrack.co. We are going to be doing, I believe, at some point, a mailbag episode, which we've done in the past. But there's so many emails that we have that we haven't been able to address, sometimes really long, thoughtful ones. So we're going to do a full segment or a full episode where we're just kind of like answering all of your questions and thoughts and insights and film recommendations or whatever. So we're going to kind of look through all those and, and present some of those in the coming month or so, let's say. Um, we also want to give a shout out to our other podcasts at Culture Binge, uh, The Squanch. Go check those things out. They're fucking great. And of course, we have to thank Riley for coming and joining oh. us. Thank you Check guys out. for Thank having you, me and and letting me just rant about this film. <laughs> well, thanks for choosing it. Conversation. Yeah, yeah. yeah thanks I, thanks for for I would have never chosen this film because I just wouldn't have thought about like it being like for our episode or for our show to like pull it apart. But I'm so fucking glad you did. That's why we need to uh, we need to kind of like look in places that would be unfamiliar, maybe. But yeah, bring the farce no, is what I'm, I'm saying. I'm so yeah, oh, man. Yes, let's. That's what I want to leave this being is like let's let's keep the farces going. Yeah, um, amen. Because God, they're yeah. good. And if you want to check out Riley, she's got a podcast that she does called Review Review. Riley, can you give us a little spiel? What uh, what do you guys do on the sure podcast? Sure can. Um, it is a long form improv based podcast uh, where we review just about anything from all the corners of the internet. We got Amazon, TripAdvisor, Yelp, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and I co host that with uh, Jeffrey James. So R E V I E W R E V U E on the Headgum Network. Sick. All right. And Ryan, where can people find you on the internet, brother? Ryan Shorts on all the platforms. I'm, uh, I'm, I had a piano lesson that, I, uh, that I'm, I'm going to put up, my piano lesson uh, video. So with Jason D. Williams, the illegitimate son of, Je- of Jer- Jerry Lee uh, Lewis. <laughs> Is it farcical? <laughs> You probably wouldn't be happy that I said that. But anyway, uh, that's what my video, my next one is about. Go check it out. <laughs> All right. And Riley, what about what about your socials? You got anything you can oh, plug? Oh, goodness. You can find me, uh, Riley Anspa, on Instagram, uh, R-E-I-L-L-Y-A-N-S-P-A-U-G-H, and uh, Riley Coyote on Twitter. 
Awesome. I'm Austin Hayden. Find me on Twitter, Insta, all the places. You know the thing. Ryan, send us out, brother. Everybody, we're Show Me The Meaning. Yeah! With Austin, Ryan, and Riley. Yeah! Oh, we're Show Me The Meaning. Woo! With Austin, (laughs) Ryan, and Riley. See you later!